Section 8 of The Plattner Story and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. The Plattner Story and Others by H.G. Wells. Section 8. Pollock and the Poro Man. It was in a swampy village on the Lagoon River behind the Turner Peninsula that Pollock's first encounter with the Poro Man occurred. The women of that country are famous for their good looks. They are Galenas with a dash of European blood that dates from the days of Vasco da Gama and the English slave traders. And the Poro Man, too, was possibly inspired by a faint Caucasian taint in his composition. It's a curious thing to think that some of us may have distant cousins eating men on Sherboro Island or raiding with the sofas. At any rate, the Poro Man stabbed the woman to the heart as though he had been a mere low-class Italian, and very narrowly missed Pollock. But Pollock, using his revolver to parry the lightning stab which was aimed at his deltoid muscle, sent the iron dagger flying and, firing, hit the man in the hand. He fired again and missed, knocking a sudden window out of the wall of the hut. The poro man stooped in the doorway, glancing under his arm at Pollock. Pollock caught a glimpse of his inverted face in the sunlight. And then the Englishman was alone, sick and trembling with the excitement of the affair in the twilight of the place. It had all happened in less time than it takes to read about it. The woman was quite dead, and having ascertained this, Pollock went to the entrance of the hut and looked out. Things outside were dazzling bright. Half a dozen of the porters of the expedition were standing up in a group near the green huts they occupied, and staring toward him, wondered what the shots might signify. Behind the little group of men was the broad stretch of black fetid mud by the river, a green carpet of rafts of papyrus and water grass, and then the leaden water. The mangroves beyond the stream loomed indistinctly through the blue haze. There were no signs of excitement in the squat village, whose fence was just visible above the cane grass. Pollock came out of the hut cautiously and walked toward the river, looking over his shoulder at intervals. But the poro man had vanished. Pollock clutched his revolver nervously in his hand. One of his men came to meet him, and as he came, pointed to the bushes behind the hut in which the poro man had disappeared. Pollock had an irritating persuasion of having made an absolute fool of himself. He felt bitter, savage, at the turn things had taken. At the same time, he would have to tell Waterhouse, the moral, exemplary, cautious Waterhouse, who would inevitably take the matter seriously. Pollock cursed bitterly at his luck at Waterhouse, and especially at the west coast of Africa. He felt consummately sick of the expedition. And in the back of his mind, all the time, was a speculative doubt where precisely within the visible horizon the poor old man might be. It is perhaps rather shocking, but he was not at all upset by the murder that had just happened. He had seen so much brutality during the last three months. So many dead women, burnt huts, drying skeletons, up the Kittim River in the wake of the Sofa Cavalry, that his senses were blunted. What disturbed him was the persuasion that this business was only beginning. He swore savagely at the black, who ventured to ask a question, and went on into the tent under the orange trees where Waterhouse was lying, feeling exasperatingly like a boy going into the headmaster's study. Waterhouse was still sleeping off the effects of his last dose of chlorodyne, and Pollock sat down on a packing case beside him, and, lighting his pipe, waited for him to awake. About him were scattered the pots and weapons Waterhouse had collected from the Mindy people in which he had been repacking for the canoe voyage to Salima. Presently, Waterhouse woke up, and after judicial stretching, decided he was all right again. Pollock got him some tea, 
Over the tea, the incidents of the afternoon were described by Pollock, after some preliminary beating about the bush. Waterhouse took the matter even more seriously than Pollock had anticipated. He did not simply disapprove. He scolded. He insulted. You're one of those infernal fools who think a black man isn't a human being, he said. I can't be ill a day without you must get into some dirty scrape or another. This is the third time in a month that you have come crossways on with a native, and this time you're in for it with a vengeance. Poro, too. They're done upon you enough as it is, about that idol you wrote your silly name on. And they're the most vindictive devils on earth. You make a man ashamed of civilization, to think you come of a decent family. If I ever cumber myself up with a vicious, stupid young lout like you again... Steady on now, snarled Pollock in the tone that always exasperated Waterhouse. Steady on. That Waterhouse became speechless. He jumped to his feet. Look here, Pollock, he said after a struggle to control his breath. You must go home. I won't have you any longer. I'm ill enough as it is through you. Keep your hair on, said Pollock, staring in front of him. I'm ready enough to go. Waterhouse became calmer again. He sat down on the camp stool. Very well, he said. I don't want a row, Pollock, you know. But it's confoundedly annoying to have one's plans put out by this kind of thing. I'll come to Salima with you and see you safe aboard. You needn't, said Pollock. I can go alone from here. Not far, said Waterhouse. You don't understand this Poro business. How should I know she belonged to a Poro man, said Pollock bitterly. Well, she did, said Waterhouse. And you can't undo the thing. Go alone indeed. I wonder what they'd do to you. You don't seem to understand that this Poro hokey-pokey rules this country. Is its law, religion, constitution, medicine, magic. They appoint the chiefs. The Inquisition at its best couldn't hold a candle to these chaps. He will probably set a Wajal, the chief here, onto us. It's lucky our porters are Mindy's. We shall have to shift this little settlement of ours. Confound you, Pollock! And of course you must go and miss him. He thought, and his thoughts seemed disagreeable. Presently, he stood up and took his rifle. I'd keep close for a bit if I were you, he said over his shoulder as he went out. I'm going out to see what I can find out about it. Pollock remained sitting in the tent, meditating. I was meant for a civilized life, he said to himself regretfully as he filled his pipe. The sooner I get back to London or Paris, the better for me. His eyes fell on the sealed case in which Waterhouse had put the featherless, poisoned arrows they had bought in the Mindy country. I wish I had hit the beggar somewhere vital, said Pollock viciously. Waterhouse came back after a long interval. He was not communicative, though Pollock asked him questions enough. The Poro man, it seems, was a prominent member of that mystical society. The village was interested, but not threatening. No doubt the witch doctor had gone into the bush. He was a great witch doctor. Of course, he's up to something, said Waterhouse, and became silent. But what can he do? asked Pollock, unheeded. I must get you out of this. There's something brewing, or things would not be so quiet, said Waterhouse, after a gap of silence. Pollock wanted to know what the brew might be. Dancing in a circle of skulls, said Waterhouse. Brewing a stink in a copper pot. Pollock wanted particulars. Waterhouse was vague, Pollock pressing. At last, Waterhouse lost his temper. How the devil should I know? He said to Pollock's twentieth inquiry what the Poro man would do. He tried to kill you offhand in the hut. Now I fancy he will try something more elaborate. But you'll see fast enough. I don't want to help unnerve you. It's probably all nonsense. 
That night, as they were sitting at their fire, Pollock again tried to draw a Waterhouse out on the subject of Poro methods. Better get to sleep, said Waterhouse, when Pollock's bent became apparent. We start early tomorrow. You may want all your nerve about you. But what line will he take? Can't say. They're versatile people. They know a lot of rum dodges. You better get that copper devil Shakespeare to talk. There was a flash and a heavy bang out of the darkness behind the huts, and a clay bullet came whistling close to Pollock's head. This, at least, was crude enough. The Blackson half-breeds sitting and yarning round their own fire jumped up, and someone fired into the dark. Better go into one of the huts, said Waterhouse quietly, still sitting unmoved. Pollock stood up by the fire and drew his revolver. Fighting, at least, he was not afraid of. But a man in the dark is the best of armor. Realizing the wisdom of Waterhouse's advice, Pollock went into the tent and lay down there. What little sleep he had was disturbed by dreams. Variegated dreams, but chiefly of the poor man's fate, upside down as he went out of the hut and looked up under his arm. It was odd that this transitory impression should have stuck so firmly in Pollock's memory. Moreover, he was troubled by queer pains in his limbs. In the white haze of the early morning as they were loading the canoes, a barbed arrow suddenly appeared quivering in the ground close to Pollock's foot. The boys made a perfunctory effort to clear out the thicket, but it led to no capture. After these two occurrences, there was a disposition on the part of the expedition to leave Pollock to himself, and Pollock became, for the first time in his life, anxious to mingle with blacks. Waterhouse took one canoe, and Pollock, in spite of a friendly desire to chat with Waterhouse, had to take the other. He was left all alone in the front part of the canoe, and he had the greatest trouble to make the men, who did not love him, keep to the middle of the river, a clear hundred yards or more from either shore. However, he made Shakespeare, the Freetown half-breed, come up to his own end of the canoe and tell him about Poro, which Shakespeare, failing in his attempts to leave Pollock alone, presently did with considerable freedom and gusto. The day passed. The canoe glided swiftly along the ribbon of lagoon water between the drift of water figs, fallen trees, papyrus, and palm wine palms, and with the dark mangrove swamp to the left, through which one could hear now and then the roar of the Atlantic surf. Shakespeare told in his soft, blurred English of how the Poro could cast spells, how men withered up under their malice, how they could send dreams and devils, how they tormented and killed the sons of Ijibu, how they kidnapped a white traitor from Salima who had maltreated one of the sect, and how his body looked when it was found. And Pollock, after each narrative, cursed under his breath, at the want of missionary enterprise that allowed such things to be, and at the inert British government that ruled over this dark heathendom of Sierra Leone. In the evening they came to Kasi Lake, and sent a score of crocodiles lumbering off the island on which the expedition camped for the night. The next day they reached Salima, and smelt the sea breeze, but Pollock had to put up there for five days before he could get on to Freetown. Waterhouse, considering him to be comparatively safe here and within the pale of Freetown influence, left him and went back with the expedition to Gabema, and Pollock became very friendly with Pereira, the only resident white trader at Salima. So friendly, indeed, that he went about with him everywhere. Pereira was a little Portuguese Jew who had lived in England, and he appreciated the Englishman's friendliness as a great compliment. For two days, nothing happened out of the ordinary. For the most part, Pollock and Pereira played nap, the only game they had in common, and Pollock got into debt. Then on the second evening, Pollock had a disagreeable intimation of the arrival of the Poro man in Salima by getting a flesh wound in the shoulder from a lump of filed iron. It was a long shot, and the missile had nearly spent its force when it hit him. 
Still, it conveyed its message plainly enough. Pollock sat up in his hammock, revolver in hand, all that night, and next morning confided to some extent in the Anglo-Portuguese. Pereira took the matter seriously. He knew the local customs pretty thoroughly. It is a personal question you must know. It is revenge. And of course he is hurried by your leaving the country. None of the natives or half-breeds will interfere with him very much, unless you make it worth their while. If you come upon him suddenly, you might shoot him, but then he might shoot you. Then there's this infernal magic, said Pereira. Of course I don't believe in it, superstition. But still it's not nice to think that whatever you are, there's a black man who spends a moonlight now and then, a dancing, about a fire to send you bad dreams. Had any bad dreams? Rather, said Pollock, I keep on seeing the beggar's head upside down, grinning at me and showing all his teeth as he did it in the hut, and coming close up to me and then going ever so far off and coming back. It's nothing to be afraid of, but somehow it simply paralyzes me with terror in my sleep. Queer things, dreams. I know it's a dream all the time, and I can't wake up from it. It's probably only fancy, said Pereira. Did my niggas say Poroman and send snakes? Seen any snakes lately? Only one. I killed him this morning. On the floor near my hammock. Almost trod on him as I got up. Ah, said Pereira, and then reassuringly. Of course it is a coincidence. Still, I would keep my eyes open. Then there's pains in the bones. I thought they were due to miasma, said Pollock. Probably they are. When did they begin? Then Pollock remembered that he first noticed them the night after the fight in the hut. It's my opinion he don't want to kill you, said Pereira. At least not yet. Ever their ideas to scare and worry men with their spells, and narrow misses, and rheumatic pains, and bad dreams, and all that, until he's sick of life. Of course, it's all talk, you know. You mustn't worry about it, but I wonder what you'll be up to next. I shall have to be up to something first, said Pollock, staring gloomily at the greasy cards that Pereira was putting on the table. It don't suit my dignity to be followed about and shot at and blighted in this way. I wonder if poor old Hokey Pokey upsets your luck at cards. He looked at Pereira suspiciously. Very luckily it does, said Pereira warmly, shuffling. They are wonderful people. That afternoon, Pollock killed two snakes in his hammock, and there was also an extraordinary increase in the number of red ants that swarmed over the place. And these annoyances put him in a fit temper to talk over business with a certain Mindy Ruff he had interviewed before. The Mindy Ruff showed Pollock a little iron dagger, and demonstrated where one struck in the neck, in a way that made Pollock shiver. And in return for certain considerations, Pollock promised him a double-barreled gun with an ornamental lock. In the evening, as Pollock and Pereira were playing cards... The Mindy Ruff came in through the doorway, carrying something in a blood-soaked piece of native cloth. "'Not here,' said Pollock very hurriedly. "'Not here!' But he was not quick enough to prevent the man, who was anxious to get to Pollock's side of the bargain, from opening the cloth and throwing the head of the poor old man upon the table. It bounded from there on to the floor, leaving a red trail on the cards and rolled into a corner where it came to rest upside down, but glaring hard at Pollock. Pereira jumped up as the thing fell among the cards, and began in his excitement to gabble in Portuguese. The Mindy was bowing with the red cloth in his hand. De gun, he said. Pollock stared back at the head in the corner. It bore exactly the same expression it had in his dreams. Something seemed to snap in his own brain as he looked at it, then Pereira found his English again. You got him killed, he said. You did not kill him yourself? 
Why should I? said Pollock. But he will not be able to take it off now. Take what off? said Pollock. And all these cards are spoiled. What do you mean by taking off? said Pollock. You must send me a new pack from Freetown. You can buy them there. But take it off. It is only superstition, I forgot. The niggers say that if the witch is, he was a witch. But it is rubbish. You must make the poor old man take it off or kill him yourself. It is very silly. Pollock swore under his breath, still staring hard at the head in the corner. I can't stand that glare, he said. Then suddenly he rushed at the thing and kicked it. It rolled some yards or so and came to rest in the same position as before, upside down and looking at him. He is ugly, said the Anglo-Portuguese. Very ugly. They do it on their faces with little knives. Pollock would have kicked the head again, but the Mindy man touched him on the arm. De Gordon, he said, looking nervously at the head. Two, if he will take that beastly thing away, said Pollock. The Mindy shook his head and intimated that he only wanted one gun now due to him, and for which he would be obliged. Pollock found neither cajolery nor bullying any good with him. Pereira had a gun to sell at a profit of 300%, and with that the man presently departed. Then Pollock's eyes against his will were recalled to the thing on the floor. It is funny that his head keeps upside down, said Pereira with an uneasy laugh. His brains must be heavy, like the weight of the little images one sees that keep always upright with the lead in them. You will take him with you when you go presently. You might take him now. The cards are all spoilt. There is a man sell them in Freetown. The room is a filthy mess as it is. You should have killed him yourself. Pollock pulled himself together and went and picked up the head. He would hang it up by the lamp hook in the middle of the ceiling of his room and dig a grave for it at once. He was under the impression that he hung it up by the hair. But that must have been wrong, for when he returned for it, it was hanging by the neck upside down. He buried it before sunset on the north side of the shed he occupied, so that he should not have to pass the grave after dark when he returned from Pereira's. He killed two snakes before he went to sleep. In the darkest part of the night, he awoke with a start and heard a pattering sound and something scraping on the floor. He sat up noiselessly and felt under his pillow for his revolver. A mumbling growl followed, and Pollock fired at the sound. There was a yelp, and something dark passed for a moment across the hazy blue of the doorway. "'A dog!' said Pollock, lying down again. In the early dawn, he awoke again with a peculiar sense of unrest. The vague pain in his bones had returned. For some time, he lay watching the red ants that were swarming over the ceiling. And then, as the light grew brighter, he looked over the edge of his hammock and saw something dark on the floor. He gave such a violent start that the hammock overset and flung him out. He found himself lying, perhaps a yard away from the head of the poro man. It had been disinterred by the dog, and the nose was grievously battered. Ants and flies swarmed over it. By an odd coincidence, it was still upside down, and with the same diabolical expression in the inverted eyes. Pollock sat paralyzed and stared at the horror for some time. Then he got up and walked round it, giving it a wide berth and out of the shed. The clear light of the sunrise, the living stir of vegetation before the breath of the dying land breeze, and the empty grave with the marks of the dog's paws lightened the weight upon his mind a little. He told Pereira of the business as though it was a jest, a jest to be told with white lips. You should not have frightened the dog, said Pereira with poorly simulated hilarity. The next two days until the steamer came were spent by Pollock in making a more effectual disposition of his possession. 
Overcoming his aversion to handling the thing, he went down to the river mouth and threw it in the seawater. But by some miracle, it escaped the crocodiles and was cast up by the tide on the mud a little way up the river to be found by an intelligent Arab half-breed and offered for sale to Pollock and Pereira as a curiosity, just on the edge of night. The native hung about in the brief twilight, making lower and lower offers, and at last getting scared in some way by the evident dread these wise white men had for the thing, went off, and passing Pollock's shed threw his burden in there for Pollock to discover in the morning. At this, Pollock got into a kind of frenzy. He would burn the thing. He went out straight away into the dawn and had constructed a big pyre of brushwood before the heat of the day. He was interrupted by the hooter of the little paddle steamer from Monrovia to Bathurst, which was coming through the gap in the bar. "'Thank heaven,' said Pollock with infinite piety, when the meaning of the sound dawned upon him. With trembling hands he lit his pile of wood hastily, threw the head upon it, and went away to pack his portmanteau and make his adieu to Pereira. That afternoon, with a sense of infinite relief, Pollock watched the flat, swampy foreshore of Salima grow small in the distance. The gap in the long line of white surge became narrower and narrower. It seemed to be closing in and cutting him off from his trouble. The feeling of dread and worry began to slip from him bit by bit. At Salima, belief in Poro malignity and Poro magic had been in the air. His sense of Poro had been vast, pervading, threatening, dreadful. Now manifestly the domain of Poro was only a little place, a little black band between the sea and the blue cloudy Mindy uplands. Goodbye, Poro, said Pollock. Goodbye, certainly not au revoir. The captain of the steamer came and leant over the rail beside him and wished him good evening and spat at the froth of the wake in token of friendly ease. I picked up a rummy curio on the beach this go, said the captain. It's a thing I never saw done this side of Indy before. What might that be? said Pollock. Pickled Ed, said the captain. What? said Pollock. Ed. Smoked. He had one of these poro chaps, all ornamented with knife cuts. Why, what's up? Nothing. I shouldn't have took you for a nervous chap, green in the face. By gosh, you're a bad sailor. All right, eh? Lord, how funny you went. Well, this head I was telling you of is a bit rum in the way. I've got it along with some snakes in a jar of spirit in my cabin. What I keeps for such curios, and I'm hanged if I don't float upsy-down. Hello. Pollock had given an incoherent cry and had his hands in his hair. He ran towards the paddle boxes with a half-formed idea of jumping into the sea, and then he realized his position and turned back toward the captain. "'Here,' said the captain. "'Jack Phillips, just keep him off me. Stand off. No near, mister. What's the matter with you? Are you mad?' Pollock put his hands to his head. It was no good explaining. "'I believe I am pretty nearly mad at times,' he said. "'It's a pain I have here.' Come suddenly. You'll excuse me, I hope. He was white and in a perspiration. He saw suddenly very clearly all the danger he ran of having his sanity doubted. He forced himself to restore the captain's confidence by answering his sympathetic inquiries, noting his suggestions, even trying a spoonful of neat brandy in his cheek. And that matter settled, asking a number of questions about the captain's private trade and curiosities. The captain described the head in detail. All the while, Pollock was struggling to keep under a preposterous persuasion that the ship was as transparent as glass, and that he could distinctly see the inverted face looking at him from the cabin beneath his feet. Pollock had a worse time almost on the steamer than he had at Salima. All day he had to control himself in spite of his intense perception of the imminent presence of that horrible head that was overshadowing his mind. 
at night his old nightmare returned, until with a violent effort he would force himself awake, rigid with the horror of it, and with the ghost of a hoarse scream in his throat. He left the actual head behind at Bathurst, where he changed ship for Tenerife, but not his dreams nor the dull ache in his bones. At Tenerife, Pollock transferred to a cape liner, but the head followed him. He gambled, he tried chess, he even read books, but he knew the danger of drink. Yet whenever a round black shadow, round black object came into his range, there he looked for the head and saw it. He knew clearly enough that his imagination was growing traitor to him, and yet at times it seemed the ship he sailed in, his fellow passengers, the sailors, the wide sea, was all part of a flimsy phantasmagoria that hung scarcely veiling it between him and a horrible real world. Then the poor man thrusting his diabolical face through that curtain was the one real and undeniable thing. At that he would get up and touch things, taste something, gnaw something, burn his hand with a match or run a needle into himself. So struggling grimly and silently with his excited imagination, Pollock reached England. He landed at Southampton and went on straight from Waterloo to his bankers in Cornhill in a cab. There he transacted some business with the manager in a private room, and all the while the head hung like an ornament under the black marble mantle and dripped upon the fender. He could hear the drops fall and see the red on the fender. A pretty fern, said the manager following his eyes, but it makes the fender rusty. Very, said Pollock, a very pretty fern, and that reminds me, can you recommend me a physician for mind troubles? I've got a little, what is it, hallucination. The head laughed savagely, wildly. Pollock was surprised the manager did not notice it, but the manager only stared at his face. With the address of a doctor, Pollock presently emerged in Cornhill. There was no cab in sight, and so he went on down to the western end of the street and essayed the crossing opposite the mansion house. The crossing is hardly easy even for the expert Londoner. Cabs, vans, carriages, mail carts, omnibuses go by in one incessant stream. To anyone fresh from the malorious solitudes of Sierra Leone, it is a boiling, maddening confusion. But when an inverted head suddenly comes bouncing, like an India rubber ball, between your legs, leaving distinct smears of blood every time it touches the ground, you can scarcely hope to avoid an accident. Pollock lifted his feet convulsively to avoid it, and then kicked at the thing furiously. Then something hit him violently in the back, and a hot pain ran up his arm. He had been hit by the pole of an omnibus, and three of the fingers of his left hand smashed by the hoof of one of the horses. The very fingers, as it happened, that he shot from the poro man. They pulled him out from between the horse's legs and found the address of the physician in his crushed hand. For a couple of days, Pollock's sensations were full of the sweet, pungent smell of chloroform, of painful operations that caused him no pain, of lying still and being given food and drink. Then he had a slight fever and was very thirsty, and his old nightmare came back. It was only when it returned that he noticed it had left him for a day. If my skull had been smashed instead of my fingers, it might have gone altogether, said Pollock, staring thoughtfully at the dark cushion that had taken on for the time the shape of the head. Pollock, at the first opportunity, told the physician of his mind trouble. He knew clearly that he must go mad unless something should intervene to save him. He explained that he had witnessed a decapitation in Dahomey and was haunted by one of the heads. Naturally, he did not care to state the actual facts. The physician looked grave. Presently, he spoke hesitatingly. As a child, did you get very much religious training? Very little, said Pollock. A shade passed over the physician's face. 
I don't know if you've heard of the miraculous cures. It may be, of course, they're not miraculous at Lord's. Faith healing will hardly suit me, I'm afraid, said Pollock with his eye on the dark cushion. The head distorted its scarred features in an abominable grimace. The physician went upon a new track. It's all imagination, he said, speaking with sudden briskness. A fair case for faith healing, anyhow. Your nervous system is run down. You're in that twilight state of health when the bogles come easiest. The strong impression was too much for you. I must make you up a little mixture that will strengthen your nervous system, especially your brain. And you must take exercise. I'm no good for faith healing, said Pollock. And therefore, we must restore tone. Go in search of stimulating air, Scotland, Norway, the Alps. Jericho, if you like, said Pollock, where Norman went. However, so soon as his fingers would let him, Pollock made a gallant attempt to follow out the doctor's suggestion. It was now November he tried football, but to Pollock the game consisted in kicking a furious inverted head about a field. He was no good at the game. He kicked blindly with a kind of horror, and when they put him back into goal and the ball came swooping down upon him, he suddenly yelled and got out of its way. The discreditable stories that had driven him from England to wander in the tropics shut him off from any but men's society and now his increasingly strange behavior made even his man-friends avoid him. The thing was no longer a thing of the eye merely. It gibbered at him, spoke to him. A horrible fear came upon him that presently, when he took hold of the apparition, it would no longer become some mere article of furniture, but would feel like a real dissevered head. Alone he would curse at the thing, defy it, entreat it. Once or twice, in spite of his grim self-control, he addressed it in the presence of others, he felt the growing suspicion in the eyes of the people that watched him, his landlady, the servant, his man. One day early in December, his cousin Arnold, his next of kin, came to see him and draw him out and watch his sunken yellow face with narrow, eager eyes. And it seemed to Pollock that the hat his cousin carried in his hand was no hat at all, but a gorgon head that glared at him upside down and fought with its eyes against his reason. However, he was still resolute to see the matter out. He got out a bicycle and riding over the frosty road from Wandsworth to Kingston, found the thing rolling along at his side and leaving a dark trail behind it. He set his teeth and rode faster. Then suddenly as he came down the hill toward Richmond Park, the apparition rolled in front of him and under his wheel so quickly that he had no time for thought, and turning quickly to avoid it, was flung violently against a heap of stones and broke his left wrist. The end came on Christmas morning. All night he had been in a fever, the bandages encircling his wrist like a band of fire, his dreams more vivid and terrible than before. In the cold, colorless, uncertain light that came before the sunrise, he sat up in his bed and saw the head upon the bracket in the place of the bronze jar that had stood there overnight. I know that is a bronze jar, he said with a chill doubt in his heart. Presently the doubt was irresistible. He got out of bed slowly, shivering and advanced to the jar with his hand raised. Surely he would see now his imagination had deceived him, recognized the distinctive sheen of bronze. At last, after an age of hesitation, his fingers came down on the patterned cheek of the head. He withdrew them spasmodically. The last stage was reached. His sense of touch had betrayed him. Trembling, stumbling against the bed, kicking against his shoes with his bare feet, a dark confusion eddying round him, he groped his way to the dressing table, took his razor from the drawer, and sat down on the bed with this in his hand. In the looking-glass he saw his own face, colorless, haggard, full of the ultimate bitterness of despair. He beheld in swift succession the incidents in the brief tale of his experience, 
his wretched home, his still more wretched school days, the years of vicious life he had led since then, one act of selfish dishonor leading to another. It was all clear and pitiless now, all its squalid folly in the cold light of the dawn. He came to the hut, to the fight with the poro man, to the retreat down the river to Salima, to the Mindy assassin and his red parcel, to his frantic endeavors to destroy the head, to the growth of his hallucination. It was a hallucination, he knew it was, a hallucination merely. For a moment he snatched at hope. He looked away from the glass, and on the bracket, the inverted head grinned and grimaced at him. With the stiff fingers of his bandaged hand, he felt at his neck for the throb of his arteries. The morning was very cold. The steel blade felt like ice. End of section 8